For Father, your word says, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters, let us tear their chains apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And as we come to you, Father, we acknowledge that our trust is in you. The world is always in a chaotic situation. And you said, uh, Lord Jesus, that in these last days there would be wars and there would be rumors of wars. Men's hearts would fail them because of fear. And we look around and we read the reports and we get the information on the internet and we just see uh, chaos and we see uh, leaders who have been given some power meeting together and making their plans and all of that and they're going to do this and they're going to do that and you just laugh, you just chuckle because you're working your plan. You run the whole world, you run the whole universe, you run them. They couldn't, they couldn't put together a sentence without you. They couldn't breathe without you. And when they don't give you glory, you can send worms to eat them up as you did with Herod. So we worship you tonight. We look to you. We thank you that uh, our, our lives and all of the nations depend on you for existence and for continuance and for sustainment. And we thank you that this world is not in chaos. I mean, there are, there are chaotic things happening, but there is an invisible hand, and there is a plan for the ages that you have put down in your book. And we are grateful that you have opened our eyes. Satan had blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. But out of your mercy and out of your grace, you have opened our eyes. The natural man cannot discern the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. We thank you because of what Christ has done in our lives. He has opened our eyes so that we just don't see what's right in front of us, but we see what you're doing. We read our newspapers and we just say, well, that fits the book. That fits Daniel. That fits Revelation. Everything's on schedule and we don't have to fret and we don't have to worry and take stuff to sleep at night. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. His throne is in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. So of all men, we are blessed. Doesn't mean that we're pain-free. Doesn't mean that we are without our uh, situations in life that break our hearts. It doesn't mean that we are just living prosperous lives without any difficulty. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but you have overcome the world. So we're just pilgrims. We're just walking through day by day, trusting you to take care of us, to make a way, to lead us, to give us wisdom. We don't have it figured out. We don't know what to do, but you do. 
So we're checking in with you and we're asking for wisdom. You've said if any of us in this room lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives all men to all men liberally and without reproach. So there are those of us tonight that are at an impasse. We're just befuddled. We're, 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 quite frankly, we've lost our wisdom. So we ask you for a fresh supply. As you gave them manna in the wilderness, may you give us wisdom tonight. And when we wake up, may there be a fresh supply for what is ahead of us tomorrow. The Lord is our shepherd. We follow Jesus. And because we follow him, we shall not want. He gives us what we need at the exact moment when we need it. So we say thank you. How blessed we are to know you. How blessed we are to have your Bible. How blessed we are that we are not in this by ourselves, but underneath are the everlasting arms holding us up. And you carry us as a father carries a little boy, you said in Deuteronomy 1. We say thank you tonight. Teach us. Give us teachable hearts. Don't let us get stubborn. Don't let us get difficult. Knock us around a little bit if you need to. Get our attention. Give us teachable hearts so we can grow and mature, continue to be conformed to the image of Christ. That just seems impossible, but you're at work. We ask you to continue to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in Ephesians chapter 6, and last week we kicked off this study on um, a fascinating 10 verses of Scripture at the end of the book of Ephesians. When you look at the book of Ephesians, it breaks up a very simple outline. The first three chapters, Paul lays out doctrine. Paul lays out the facts about who God is, what God has done. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the, my gosh, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the seven wonders of the Bible. I, I'm just throwing this off. It is majestic when you read Ephesians chapter 1. But it's, it's fact upon fact about the greatness of God and about who God is and about what God has done. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, you, you got doctrine, you got truth, you got facts. And then the second half of the book, and you often see this in the epistles, is to a degree, the first half of a book, the first part of a book will be about doctrine, about what is true. And then the second half of the book is the fact that we need to apply what is true. We just don't take the information, we just don't take the knowledge. The Christian life is not one where we just absorb all these facts and get swelled heads. It's not an academic exercise. It's not where we get tenure because of how much we know. It's to be lived out. It's to be applied. We know certain things about God that should make a difference in how I sleep at night. I know certain things about who God is and how, is, how he has redeemed me. I look at what he's done in my life. You get into Ephesians 2 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when it says you were dead, it means you were dead. You weren't half dead. You weren't unconscious, you were dead as a doornail, and dead men can't change their condition, so what did Christ do? He came into our lives and he made us alive when we didn't want to be alive. That's his work, that's his grace. He resuscitated us. 
Jesus did for you and Jesus did for me what he did for Lazarus. Lazarus was dead as a doornail, and Jesus stayed away on purpose so that there could be no question that he was dead because his body was already smelling. And his sister said, Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't happen. Well, he stayed away on purpose because he was going to show his glory and show his power by taking a man who was dead, clinically dead, the death certificate had been filed and was in City Hall, and there was no question about it, and he was going to raise him by his power. Now, that's what Jesus does with us. We're dead as a doornail spiritually. Oh, we're breathing, and we got jobs, and you know, we watch TV, but spiritually we're dead. Psalm 14, there's no one who seeks God. That's an interesting passage, isn't it? Well, I have a friend who's seeking him. Oh, well, the Spirit of God's working in his life. But on your own, you'll never seek him. Jesus said, no man can come unless the Father, what? Draws him. So all salvation is a work of the Lord, and we thank him for it. And then you get further in Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of work that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand before you were ever born, that you might walk in them. So the fact that you're here tonight and the fact that you exist is because God redeemed you and God had a plan for your life before you were ever born. And at the right moment, he brought you to Christ. And now he's doing a work and he's developing you. And you say, well, I don't feel like I'm making progress. Well, usually progress is slow in the Christian life, but that's okay. He's going somewhere with your life, and he's giving you gifts, and he has a work for you to do. And as we've said in here many times, you can't die until you do the work. And we've got different gifts, and we do different things, and we have different aptitudes. Well, that's how God runs the whole world. Not everybody is in sales. If everybody was in sales, everybody would be off on a, in Vegas because they hit their quotas, and nothing would get done. Uh, somebody's got to stay home and do the bookkeeping. Someone's got to stay home and, you know what I'm talking about, somebody's got to be an engineer. Somebody, so God dispenses the gifts and disperses gifts and aptitudes and all that. So he's got to work in, in this room for every guy to do. That's all doctrine. That's all truth. See, that's the first half of Ephesians. Then you get into Ephesians 5 and it says, be filled with the Spirit. And we go, oh, well, well, you know, and Christians get in all kinds of dialogue. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, to be filled with the Spirit simply means to be controlled. You got your Bible there in Ephesians 5? It says, don't be drunk with wine. The guy who's drunk with wine, what is he? He's controlled. When you're filled with wine, you're controlled by wine. Don't be, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. See, to be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. So you see what's happening in Ephesians 5? That's the practical application of the doctrine that you got in the first three, verses, in the first three chapters. So, so you've got doctrine in, verses, uh, in chapters 1 through 3. Then you get into um, 4, 5, and 6, and I picked 5 just because it popped into my head. You've got practical application. I'm going to take what's true in 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, and in 4, 5, and 6, I'm going to apply it to my life. So I'm to be, uh, I'm to be filled with the Spirit. I'm to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And you see, when people are controlled by the Spirit of God, and a lot of times people in churches, you know, they, it's funny how guys are different, a lot of times people are different at church than they are at home. That shouldn't be that way. The Christian life is meant to be lived out, not in church, but at home. 
So when, when, if you look at 5.18, it says, don't get drunk with wine. That's participation. That's a weight. But be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. And then he talks about our speech. The first thing that's talked about when you're filled with the Spirit of God, it changes how you, how you talk. And it changes your attitude. And instead of always being uh, complaining and always murmuring, you give thanks for all things. And then this is interesting because then you see... This is practical application of doctrine. So the next thing he talks about is wives. Then the next thing he talks about is husbands. To be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, should make a difference in my home and my marriage. Now, does it mean we, we always get along and we always see eye to eye? No, it, is, it doesn't mean that. But you know what it means? It means we talk and we work things out, and sometimes uh, the decibel level gets a little higher than normal. But you work it out, and, and, and do we fight? Well, I don't know about you, but we do. But here's the difference. In a home where Christ is there, you might have some tussles, but you know what? You fight, you fight fair. And you don't say wicked things designed to rip your wife's heart out or your kid's heart. You see? Am I making sense? Because Christ is reigning and ruling, and he has redeemed you, and that ought to make a difference in how you are at home. If you're the same jerk at home that you were before you knew Christ, the question is, do you know Christ? Right? Yeah. Uh, look at 6.4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't always be ticking your kids off. Don't be, don't be, uh... gosh, don't be a control freak. Now, this doesn't mean this doesn't mean this does not mean there's not discipline in the home. There has to be discipline in the home. That's that's all through Proverbs. You got to discipline and all. But but you know, there's a harshness that can happen in a home with a father and a kid. He's always riding them, always riding them. They can never do anything right. There's a critical spirit. The kid can never measure up. And what does that do? That makes a kid mad. Man, it make wouldn't that make you mad? Some of you guys grew up with dads like that. And see, when a kid has a Christian father that's riding them and riding them and riding them and riding them, it's pretty hard to believe that the Heavenly Father is full of, full of grace and truth, isn't it? Yes, it is. So these, this stuff's to be lived out. Well, what's interesting about Ephesians, there, there's a little, there, there, there's, there's just a, a little departure from what normally occurs in these epistles, because when you get to 610, see, as he's winding down and giving his greetings to everybody, you think he's, you know, at the end of these epistles, he greets the different folks and all that. Just as you think he's sort of moving into that, he says, finally then. But he doesn't go with the greetings. He suddenly gets very serious. And he starts talking about spiritual warfare. Because you see, we're in a war. Christian life is a war. The Christian life is a battle. Um, and he says this, Ephesians 6, 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces and wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you will be able to to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. And then he starts laying out the uh, different pieces of armor. And we're going to go through this. I mentioned, if you were here last week, 
I mentioned that this is a substantial passage of Scripture. William Gurnall in the 1500s was a pastor in England. He wrote uh, a book that is still published today called The Christian in Complete Armor. Uh, you can get the hardcover copy, which is 1,200 pages double-columned. If it was formatted normally, it'd be 2,400 pages in that volume on 10 verses out of this text. Martin Lloyd-Jones, giant of the 20th century, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, on these 10 verses, when he was preaching through Ephesians, these 10 verses got 52 Sundays straight. 52 sermons out of 10 verses on spiritual warfare. That's amazing because a lot of churches don't even believe there is a devil. A lot of churches don't even believe there is a Satan. A lot of churches have taken out the supernatural out of the Bible. Then you're not a church. You're a country club. Now, last week, by way of review, you see, because what you've got here, you've got spiritual warfare, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So last week we did a little background on Satan, on the devil, who he is, where did he come from. Found out if you look at Isaiah 14, if you look at Ezekiel 28, those two passages are addressed to two human kings. But the things that are said in each of those passages uh, go beyond human kings. It gets into supernatural stuff. The descriptions that are there could not be true of just a human being. And it has been pointed out, those passages are addressed not only to the human ruler, not only to the human king, but to the unseen force who stands behind that king. There is an unseen world. So we've got some world leaders meeting today, been meeting today in Washington. And let me tell you something, there is demonic activity behind it. Just know that. When you see that passage that says this in 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We see this ruler, we see this king, we see this president, we see this whoever it is around the world. In, in all ages, there are these different political leaders. But there is a demonic force that stands behind them. That's why Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, is addressed not only to the king, but there's something supernatural going on. There are spiritual forces. And we uh, looked at that passage last week where the king of Aram was upset because every time he would decide to attack the king of Israel... The king of Israel, when, his, when the king of Aram showed up with his troops, the king of Israel would be waiting for him. He was going to ambush Israel. Israel would ambush him, and he said, he said to his advisors, which one of you guys is a traitor? And they said, none of us, but the man of God, Elisha. Read your thoughts when you're in your bedroom. So they go down to ambush Elisha. And the next morning... And they surround that town of Dothan. There's mountains around. Next morning, Elisha's servant goes out to get the Jerusalem post. And he's still waking up. And he looks out there. And the mountains are surrounded by the armies of the king of Aram. And he runs against Elisha. And Elisha says, don't worry. There are more of us than there are of them. He's thinking Elijah hasn't had his coffee either. 
Elisha. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And he saw the angels of God and the chariots of God and the chariots of fire surrounding them. There's an unseen world. See, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There is a demonic bureaucracy. Satan was, uh, of all the angels, the most gifted. Michael Gabriel would be in that league, but he was the chief of the angels, given more than any other angel. But if you go back over those passages, you'll see that he rebelled against God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to ascend his throne over the throne of God. So why didn't God, and, and there was a rebellion, and when you look at Revelation 12, Revelation 12, uh, he took a third of the angels with him. And so there is not only a Satan, but there is a demonic bureaucracy. There are minions, there's middle management, there are VPs, there are, how many of them are, are there? Well, we don't know. We, we get a sense from scripture that the angels are countless beyond number, beyond number. So if a third of them went with him, there's a lot of them. But he was thrown out of heaven. Now, so there was this, there was this uh, rebellion in heaven. This is way before the earth. This is way before uh, Adam and Eve. This is way before the garden. Isn't this wild stuff? That's what the Bible teaches. See, gosh, man, things are, I mean, that's unbelievable. Things were out of control. They weren't out of control. Are you in Ephesians? Go back to Ephesians 1, verse 11. You mean there was, there was rebellion in heaven before the, world, the earth was created? Yeah. Well, man, that's just nuts. I mean, I, mean, I mean, how could that be? Well, I'll show you how it could be. Look at Ephesians 1. Now, Paul is in, in the middle of one of these sentences where he never takes a breath in Ephesians 1. He just keeps rolling until he can't breathe anymore. And in the middle of that, and you've got to just kind of jump in the middle and swim, at the end of verse 11, he says... Um, speaking of God and his purpose, he speaks of God as the God who works all things after the counsel of his will. You could blow right by that phrase. That phrase doesn't say he works some things after the counsel of his will. It says he works all things after the counsel of his will. So let me tell you what that means. That rebellion that occurred with Satan in heaven past, before the creation of the earth, was not a shock to God. It was part of the plan of God. Now, is that strange or what? I'll tell you what else is somewhat strange to me. Is that Jesus was the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world. Now, the Lamb of God, when Jesus showed up and John the Baptist was baptizing, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? The sin of the world. Okay, to follow me here. Jesus was the Lamb of God before the foundation of the world, before sin was in the world. Well, now, if I were God, I might do it a little differently. And that's why I'm not God. But do you notice he didn't check in with us and take a poll and see what we thought? Because <laughs> it doesn't matter what we think. His ways are not our ways, Isaiah 55, 8. His ways are not our ways. He doesn't do it the way we think that he should do it. 
His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. See, if I'm God and I know there's going to be rebellion in heaven, well, why don't I just stop the rebellion? We're doing that all the time with terrorists. We got, we're, we're into the secret cells and we're checking these guys and listening to their cell phones and all this. And we're trying to stop attacks and they're stopping attacks. Thank the Lord for that. Well, why wouldn't God stop Satan's rebellion? Why did, he didn't stop it because he didn't want to stop it. It was part of the plan. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Even the rebellion of Satan in heaven. That's strange to us, isn't it? Oh, and part of that is that Satan was the first sinner. He would come to the earth later. He would tempt the woman in the garden, and sin would come into the world for the first time. And where there is sin, then with it comes death. And there needs to be a Redeemer, who is Jesus. Well, why not just nip it in the bud? Why not just change the plan, stop it before it begins, and then you don't have to give your son to die for the world? See, that's how I think. That's how you think. But Jesus was the lamb before a lamb was needed. Hmm. This is called theology. Theology is the study of God. Oh, by the way, the pressure you've been feeling all, all day about your situation or this or that, it's, uh, you haven't been thinking about the last few minutes, have you? Why? Because you've been looking at God and His greatness. Oh, by the way, that pressure you're feeling, if he can handle the rebellion of Satan in the world, can, I, can he not handle what you're dealing with today? Is it not under his control? Is it not under his sovereignty? He works all things after the counsel of his will. Yeah, it, 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 hey, hey, man, you know what? It's going to sort. It's going to sort. Why? Because he's God, and he's your father. I was reading Gurnall, this guy from the 1500s. I was reading him this morning. He says, when a father takes his children on a journey, it's the father's responsibility to pick up all the expenses. I really like that. <laughs> right? Some of us had to write a check for taxes this month. Thinking, you know, I <laughs> Well, you know, I got a father. And I'm traveling with him. And he picks up the expenses. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about your life. Didn't that help you right there? Didn't that help you? Man, it helped me. That's great stuff. See, it's theology. It's truth. I'm not in this by myself. So there was rebellion in heaven. Okay. So, so first of all, why did God allow it? Well, it was part of his plan. Do we get that? No, but it was part of the plan. That's why it occurred. It didn't stun him. It didn't shock him. So you got this rebellion in heaven. Now, here's my next question. Why didn't God then just utterly destroy Satan and just take care of it and just end it right there? I like what Erwin Lutzer says in his book. He says this. I brought the book tonight. I brought my Bible tonight. If you were here last week, I was, I was a wreck. Um, I'll tell you, that Ritalin works. I took about a quart of that stuff. <laughs> took about a quart of that this morning in my orange juice. and uh, Yeah, I got other issues now, but at least I'm here. 
He's talking in here in the context about the rebellion of Satan. Satan rebels, takes a third of the angels. And it wasn't a shock to God. Lucifer says this, God now had several options. He could have exterminated Lucifer, crushing him with raw power. That was an option, just crushing. It's over, it's done. Or he could have banished him to another planet. There in a concentration camp in a dark corner of a far-off galaxy, Satan and his demons could have brooded over the foolishness of their decision. That sounds pretty good to me. Then again, God could have thrown him into the lake of fire immediately. Go ahead and get it over with. That too would have been fair and just. Then Luther writes this, But God decided to use Lucifer, whom we shall now call Satan, watch this, to demonstrate truths that would have been permanently hidden if evil had never have entered the universe. The curtain would rise on a drama acted out on the earth in which Lucifer and God, justice and good and evil, would be in conflict. And here are the rules. Number one, Satan would be given the rulership of the world. He would be allowed to spread his lies. You know, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world in John chapter 12, verse 31. Here's the second rule. God would give Satan time to see if he could rule his own kingdom successfully. And he can't. Could he bring order out of the chaos which he had created? And the answer is no. Here's the third rule. You guys still with me? God would not compromise his own holiness and justice, but would meet Satan on a level playing field, winning a moral and spiritual victory over his adversary. And then he, then he amplifies on this. This is brilliant. The Almighty would not just win by power, but by righteousness. The battle would be not only to determine who was the strongest, but who was right and just. Both sides would recruit others to stand with them in the conflict. He who wished to have his own kingdom, Satan, will be forced to prove that he can only divide and not unite. He cannot build, but only destroy. He can shout, let there be light, but he remains shrouded in darkness and hears only the empty echo of his own voice. He cannot endure the truth, but he must embrace lies. From now on, says Francis Thompson, Satan will never sing again, but only howl. Gosh, I love that. And then he finishes by saying, though Lucifer is intelligent, he is not wise. And he isn't. I want to give you two words tonight. We're going to focus on uh, Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. I want to give you two words. The first word is omni, O-M-N-I. O-M-N-I, and I don't mean the hotel down in Dallas. First word is omni. The second word is schemes. S-C-H-E-M-E-S. Now, let's just take a minute in this rebellion of Satan just to kind of finish up with our discussion of it from last week. Um, Satan's rebellion was doomed from the start. 
And, and it is true, he's intelligent, but he's not wise. He wanted to become God, but there was a problem that would, that would make sure that rebellion would be never successful. And it all comes down to the word omni. There, there are three omnis that only God has and Satan doesn't, because Satan is a created being. Let me give them to you. Number one, you, you know, the Bible says in Ephesians 6.10, it says, be strong in the Lord. So I don't know what battles are going on in your life right now. I have a good friend whose family is, is just because just he shared with me, I know his situation. His family's being torn, ripped apart because of what's going on with a, with a rebellious child. It's affecting his relationship with his wife. Man, I remember being there 10 years ago. I told you about that. If you were here last week, I told you about going through that with my son John. What I didn't know is John was sitting up there last week. He just showed up. And I saw him when I walked out. And it was kind of interesting. And we were talking. And I said, you know, John, I really hadn't planned on saying that. He said, Dad, remember I told you you can say it anytime you want. Because that's where we were and that's what we went through. And you know, he says, you're right, God has blessed us. Look where we are today, but look where we were, Dad. And you know, you keep telling that, Dad, because that'll give some guys some hope. He said, I was in bad shape. I said, yes, you were. In fact, I'm going to whip your tail again. I'm just thinking about it. That kid about killed me and his mother. But look what Jesus has done in his life. Is that where you are right now? It's not over. It's not done. Is there a battle going on? Yeah, but be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I remember a buddy of mine who I was sharing with at my house about what was going on with John, a guy who was well-known in the Christian world, talks on the family all the time, gifted guy of that. He said to me, he said, he said, you know what, Steve, I'm telling you, he'll come around. I've been through that with all four of my kids. And you know what that did? That encouraged me. Because I thought his, he had it all together in his family. No, they went through it. He said, my daughter wouldn't even talk to me for three years. I said, really? He said, you stay with it. You just stay with it. You just stay with it. You stay with it. Be strong. So you got a battle going on, you're worn out, you're all right. Okay, what do you do? Be strong in the Lord. Isn't that 610? And in the strength of his might. Hey, be strong in the omnis. Let me give you the three omnis. Okay, number one. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God isn't. Pantheism says God is in everything. That's not true. But God is everywhere. Psalm 139 says, where can I go from thy presence? Where can I flee from thy presence? If I take the wings of the dawn, you know in the morning when the sun comes up, before you see the sun, you see, you see the rays of dawn? If you could harness, if you get on one of those rays, what's the speed of light? 186,000 miles per second. I almost said 144,000. That sounded more biblical to me, but it's 186,000 miles per second. So if you could get on one of those wings of the dawn, put a saddle on it, harness it, you'd be going 186,000 miles per second. And if you rode that all day and you got off, how far out there would you be? When you'd get off, the presence of God would still be there. 
Where can I go from thy presence? You can't go anywhere because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. Satan is not. Satan can only be in one place at one time. Here's another omni. God is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. God has all power. Satan has limited power. As we said last week, Martin Luther said the devil is God's devil. He's a pit bull, but he's got him on a chain. And he barks and and he can do some damage, but only what God allows. He had to go to God and get permission to afflict Job, and God said, you can go this far and no further. He couldn't go, and he couldn't go past it, could he? No. Oh, by the way, if he was working on Job, he couldn't be over here, and he couldn't be over here. As someone has said, if, if, he's, if he's at a meeting in Washington, D.C., he can't be in Jerusalem. If, if, if he is in uh, China, he can't be uh, at your home at the dinner table. Now, he has his minions, but Satan is a created being, and he has, he has limited power. He can only be in one place at one time, and he has power. Does he have power? Yes, he's powerful, but not the power of God. Jesus came, and the demons would tremble. Would they not? They would tremble. The gathering demoniac. They said, oh, no, 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 cast us cast into the pig. At the name of Jesus, they're trembling. They still tremble at his name. So get close to Christ. Resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. Because of the power of God. Because of the power of Christ. This is important to know. God is omni. Omnipresent. Omnipotent with his power. He is omniscient. God knows all things. Satan doesn't. He knows some things. Oh, is he intelligent? As Luther said, yes, but he's not wise. Our God knows all things. All things. He knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows everything that's going on in the world. He's got all this factory. He's got this. He's got, this. He's got the Iran's, you know, nuclear thing. He's got this. He's got, you know, it cracked me up over the holiday. I'm reading, a, you know, Iran, and, you know, they got the, the, the atomic reactors, and they're going all this. And Have you read about this worm that's gotten into the computer system in Iran at the nuclear plants? Are those Israelis not a piece of cake? <laughs> huh? How are we going to attack? How are we going to bomb? How are we going to fly that far? And got to go over the middle. How are we going to fly in? They just get some Israeli nerds. And they just take them down internally. That just cracked me up. And you don't read a lot about it in the media. For obvious reasons. That's just... That's just God working what he wants to do. See, God knows all things. He's got the, you know, well, I got this, I don't know how I'm going to, oh, man, I don't know how, he knows, he knows. He knows, well, he knows all things. He knows 10 million things about your situation you don't have a clue about. He knows how they all intersect providentially in this and how this situation you're handling today and this thing that's in your life will have implications for your grandchildren you know nothing about. So how can that be? Well, we can't get it. But it's all tied in together. There's a plan. It's called providence. See? 
And we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he's God. He's omni. He's omni. Satan isn't. Are we in battle? Do we get in skirmishes? Does he try to divide our homes, try to divide our families and get our kids to do stupid things and we make mistakes? And we, oh, I, could, I can't believe I did that. I was such an idiot. Yeah, you were. You got deceived. You got conned. Happens to all of us. Oh, I'm such a failure. I screwed up my life. I just, I wish I had to come to Christ earlier. Well, you didn't, but you come to Christ now. Yeah, but I keep failing. I keep falling short. And, oh, I'm just so discouraged. And it was, that's one of the primary ways Satan gets you down is discouragement. You see. Oh, I want to be used by God. I'll never be used by God. Well, why wouldn't you use, be, be used by God? Well, I'm a failure. Well, who else does God have to choose from? The only guys God can use are failures. How many, if you've never failed, raise your hand. Uh, you just failed, man. <laughs> We're all screwed up, aren't we? And what does God do? Jesus comes into our lives. He redeems us. He gives us a new heart. He starts us on the process of instantaneous growth. I haven't sinned in 10 years. Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> because that's ridiculous. If you say you have no sin, you make him to be a liar. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. Is Christ in my life? Yeah. But it's not microwave growth, man. It's slow growth. It's slow growth. That's how it works. But he's working. So see, he's going to try and discourage you. He's going to try and overwhelm you. You're, oh, you're just no good. You're still struggling with that sin. Yeah. <sighs> That's spiritual warfare. Okay? So what do you got to do? You got to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Jesus is my defense attorney. You see? Okay. Are you guys still with me? All right, so here we go. Let's at least, let's try to work through at least one verse tonight. That would be a significant accomplishment. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that's where we get the omnis. So we're going to be in the omnis. We're going to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and the greatness of God. And then he says this to us. He goes, put on the full armor of God. And we're going to work through the coming weeks in the armor. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the what? Schemes. Strategies. King James says wiles, W-I-L-E-S. What's a wile? It's a method. It's a strategy. That you may be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. And I asked the question last week, and I'll ask it again tonight. Knowing you the way you do, if you were the enemy and going to try to bring you down, what plan would you put in place to bring you down? Where are you vulnerable? And see, when a guy gets serious about following Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. If you're not serious about Christ, if you're just a Texas church guy whose daddy was a preacher or your grandpa was a preacher and you go to church and fall asleep and eat fried chicken afterwards and, you know, do the whole Texas cultural Christian thing, if that's who you are, he didn't care about you because he's already got you neutralized. You think you're saved and you're not saved. But when you come to know Christ and Jesus is first in your life and you're pursuing after him and you're seeking him first, now, now, now. Now you got a target on you. There's an old Gary Larson, the far side. Some of you guys remember the cartoon I'm going to refer to. 
was it two, um, two deer, and they're out in the field, and they're talking to each other, and one of the deers has this bullseye. Yeah, on, on the side, I think, on, the, on his ribs, perhaps. He's kind of on the side. There's this full bullseye. And the other deer says to him, that's a heck of a birthmark. <laughs> you just sent her in the crosshairs. I'm not supposed to say that. I forgot. <laughs> but that's what you do. You just sit in the crosshairs, and you're going to put that sucker in your freezer. When you start following Christ and getting serious about Jesus, you got a bullseye on you. Because you see, he hates God, he hates the plan of God, he hates the purpose of God, and you're part of it now. So he's going to, he's going to try it and destroy you and your family and your home and God's purpose for your life, but he's insane because he can't do it. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Satan is not equal with God. Okay. But he does have schemes. All right, here we go. Got your Bible? You got your tacky finger stuff? Because we're going to turn to some scripture. Let's look at the schemes that he's going to attempt to use on us, schemes that have been outlined in the scripture that'll help us understand the nature of what we're up against. All right, let's start back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He's been thrown out of heaven. He's on the earth. And it says this. Now, you know the story. This is going to go into the story of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and the temptation and all of that. But before we get there, it says this. Now, the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. So when we talk about the schemes of the devil, know this. Know, the, know number one, he's crafty. Have you ever been in a situation, a social situation, maybe meeting someone for the first time and you're perhaps meeting with this guy and his wife and you're talking about a, a venture or going into some kind of partnership, um, a relationship of some type, and on your way home, your wife says, she's very quiet, and then she said, I'd, I, I, I'd be careful of him. Have you ever had that happen to you? I have. Yeah, or he gives me the creeps. And I'm thinking, well, he, I, I kind of like the guy. Well, see, there's that radar. There's that discernment with godly women where they are able that, you know, you know there's a craftiness that's there. That's happened to me before where Mary has seen it before I have seen it. And I'm thinking, I, I, I didn't get anything. And two years later, I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, the serpent was more crafty. Know this about our enemy. He's crafty. Know this, he's deceptive. He doesn't always come on with a full-blown spiritual attack. There are times when he will attack believers. Someone in his bureaucracy will attack a believer. And it's an evil day, and you're up against the assault of the enemy. And by the way, if that's happened to you, you've seen the Lord deliver you. You don't have to fear it if it comes again. You just pray, and you just call out to Christ. And you rebuke him in the name of Jesus. And he has to flee. So you have to live in fear of this. I was talking to someone recently that woke up. This has happened to me before. It doesn't happen all the time. But uh, this guy was telling, you know, he woke up. He's, he's, he's being used in, in, in foreign lands and missions and all of this. And he woke up and there was just a, he, there was a satanic oppression that was all over him. And he just called out to Jesus. And it left. Does that happen every day? No. 
Sometimes it's a frontal assault, but sometimes he's just crafty. Uh, there used to be a guy named Anton LaVey. Anton LaVey started the Church of Satan in San Francisco. I lived in the Bay Area. I was in, I grew, I was, you know, my junior high, high school years, I lived in the Bay Area. And I went to college in Southern California. And in the mid-60s, they built an interstate that goes right down the spine of California from San Francisco down to Los Angeles called I-5. It's just a straight shot. And when they built it, this is the government for you, they forgot for 400 miles to put any gas stations in. That's a true story. They opened, everybody's excited, and everybody's running out of gas. So Chevron came in, and just outside of Coalinga, the earthquake capital of the world, by the way, they built this huge Chevron station. I mean, it was massive. And they were building a whole bunch of them. But I remember pulling in, I was going from home from Thanksgiving or break back down to college in LA. And I'm pulling into that Chevron station in Coalinga, and I'm pumping gas in my Volkswagen. I look over, and there's Anton LaVey putting gas in his car. I didn't think he needed gas to run that thing. But he's over there pumping gas. And I'd seen a thing on him on TV. And being a young kid, you know, just kind of, I just walked over to him. And I said, excuse me, are you Anton LaVey? And he turned, and he was the most winsome, magnetic, charismatic, embracing guy I think I've ever met in my life. He, he said, yes, I am. And tell me your name. Not, not, not fake, not phony, not just, just couldn't be any nicer. Just couldn't be any nicer. And he was a card-carrying public representative of Satan. Believed, believed. It wrote the Satanic Bible. Serpent was more crafty. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.3. We're going to hustle, guys. 2 Corinthians 11.3. We're talking about how, uh, how Satan schemes, how he's going to try to attempt to scheme you, to scheme me. What's interesting is we're going to be reading some of the New Testament epistles. And you know what's interesting to this? Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed this out. Is that when you read the New Testament epistles, you see the schemes of the devil all the time. Because Paul was writing because there were issues that came up in the church. Why were issues coming up in the church? Part of the schemes of the devil, to try to bring down the church, bring down the people of God. So in 2 Corinthians eleven three, Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, there it is, he was so winsome in the garden. He didn't bulldoze her. He didn't frighten her. He didn't scare her. She wasn't trembling. It wasn't like watching The Exorcist. He just smoothed her. See, it's one of his schemes. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Go down to verse 13. See, here's always what happens. There are false apostles and there are false teachers. He says, for such, they, they were saying, and the context is, they were saying that Paul wasn't a genuine apostle, which he was. Later, he says, the signs of a true, I worked the signs of a true apostle among you with signs and wonders and miracles. Those were confirming signs that he was an apostle, hand-chosen by Christ. But you had some teachers there saying, no, Paul's not real, Paul's not genuine, don't listen to him, listen to us. 
He says in 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. The word disguise is masquerading. They're not of Christ, they're of Satan. Verse 14, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself. Even Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. It's one of his schemes. So you've got a whole bunch of people that think they're following Jesus Christ who believe in another testament of Jesus Christ. And if you read the opening pages of the Book of Mormon, you find out that an angel of light appeared to Joseph Smith, a man who did not know the Word of God. And he was deceived by the light, by this angel, Moroni, who if you see the Mormon temples in Salt Lake or in L.A. or wherever you are, and you see that golden angel on top, that's Moroni. That's the angel of light. That's a masquerade. A lot of people have been conned. You read Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven preached you a different gospel, let him be accursed. And when you read the gospel, it's in the Book of Mormon, it's a different gospel. Completely different. All starts with an angel of light. Oh, by the way, in the garden, when Satan appeared to Eve, he invited her to eat of the fruit. She said, we can't eat of the fruit because God said we'll die. And what did he say? You shall not die. From the very outset, right out of the starting blocks, Satan is trying to cause a human being to doubt the word of God. Oh, that's not true. Oh, that's not true. God said, oh, that's not, you can't believe that. You can't believe it. And he's been doing it every day since. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Flip back to the left. Let's go to 2. Um, I think we looked at this last week, actually. There was a situation where there was a guy in sin, and Paul had written that he be disciplined, and the guy responded to the discipline. They're not forgiving him, and Paul says, no, you need to forgive him, and that's the context. Uh, he's in verse 10 encouraging them to forgive them, and he says in verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Now watch this. For we are, na we are not ignorant of his schemes. Does he have schemes? Yes. Well, we're not going to be ignorant of his schemes. He's real. He's there. He wants to disrupt us. He wants to disrupt our church. We're not ignorant. That's why we're doing this study. Uh, go to uh, 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. Now what you have is that you have Paul giving instructions to young Timothy. Because Timothy, a church has been established, and now they've got to put leaders into the church. Well, let me tell you, leader, leaders can make or break a church. And so Paul, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, he says, here are the qualifications of a leader. They've got to be wealthy. They've got to have an education. They've got to drive a certain kind of chariot. They've got to have this and that. Paul doesn't say anything about that. You know what Paul says? They've got to be a man of certain godly character. Character. Don't put some guy on your, on your elder board because he's got a lot of money. That's not, that's not in here. Now, there are some godly men who God has blessed and they love Christ more than they love their money. 
but it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So money's not an issue. It is in a lot of churches, but Paul's saying you got leaders, there are certain character qualifications that have to be in these leaders' lives, and as he's giving them the different character qualifications, he says in verse 6 that when you are looking to appoint an elder, you don't appoint a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. You put a young guy, a young Christian, and you make him a spiritual leader, he can't handle that. He's going to swell up like a toad with pride. Look at the next verse. He must also have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You ever read Louis L'Amour? And I read Louis L'Amour. There's a good guy, there's a bad guy. Oftentimes, the good guy has stood for justice and right, and uh, somebody's after him, the Kiowas or the Apaches, and uh, he's running for his life, or there's a posse that's after him, and the guy's got to go up in the mountains. We've talked about box canyons in here before, but he's got to survive in the wilderness, and he's been gunshot, and he's been, you know, this and that, and he's out of water, and he's lost blood, and he's, you know, he, he's, he's nauseous, and he's just trying to dig it in a hole and survive, and he finally has fever and the fever breaks and he comes to his senses and he realizes he's got to get some water and he's got to eat. So what does he do? Because he's a woodsman. You know what he does? He sets a snare. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere, if you know how to set a snare, you're going to eat. He just sets a snare and he's always going to get a rabbit. Every, every stinking time. You know why? Because rabbits never see the snare. What do you do? You camouflage the snare. Rabbit's just out there doing his like... That's how it works, man. It's deception. It's camouflage. You go out bass fishing, what are you doing? You're camouflaging. You're setting a snare. You've spent thousands of bucks to get a bass that big. <laughs> you bought a boat. You got GPS. You've gone bankrupt trying to get some fish. Go down to the market and buy one, man. <laughs> but it's fun to be in the hunt, isn't it? It's all about deception. It's all about camouflage. That's the game. That's the fun of it. Hey, we're the hunted. We got a hunter. Don't put a young convert in. He can't, he'll fall into the snare. Second Timothy 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but could be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, and perhaps God may grant them. This is surprising. When you're in a church and you're teaching, there's some people who aren't going to like you. And there, I, was, I was teaching earlier this week and teaching on this. And the guy goes, I don't believe that. I said, oh, well, you're an idiot. Get out of here. <laughs> I didn't say that. I said, well, tell me why you know it. He said, well, I believe in this verse. That verse says that. And I said, yeah. But then you got this, and you got this, and you got this, and you got this, and you got this. He goes, yeah, but this says, yeah, I know, but you interpret the obscure in light of the clear, and you take the whole counsel of God. And he was, he was processing. And he wasn't fighting, he wasn't there. He just never heard that before. You see? He was just, and he, I mean, it kind of threw him. You go, oh, I don't know if I, but that's Old Covenant. And I said, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Well, that's Old Testament. I said, well, that doesn't mean it's not true. <coughs> Jesus quoted the Old Testament all the time. Are you telling me the Old Testament isn't valid? Well, I'm not saying that. Well, you kind of are, aren't you? Just a little, maybe? You might want to rethink that, man. He goes, yeah, I, 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 you know, he, he was just, what, what's going on here? 
Well, the guy's, the guy's barely new, and he's been taught a certain thing in a church for as long as he's been a believer, and I'm, you know, it's kind of pulling his chain a little bit. Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, and perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. Watch this, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. There are Christian people that have been ensnared by being taught wrong things and believing wrong things. What do you do? You hammer them? You bulldoze them? No. You work with them. And you help them get out of the snare. The whole point is, I've got more verses. We're out of time. We're in a battle. So, man, one guy told me last week as I was leaving out, he said, you scared me to death. That's what he said. He said, man, you scared, you scared me. I mean, you just scared me to... But see, the point of this is not to be scared. The point of this is to understand we're in a battle. This shouldn't scare us. See, if you're scared, you're focusing on the wrong place. Right? Is there an adversary? Yeah, but he's not omni. He's not omni. He's not God. Yeah, but my daughter's in this, or my son's in this, or my business partner's gone crazy. Okay, so what's the solution? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You know something? God controls every human heart on the face of the earth. He can turn it like that. Oh, they're gone. They're, they're, there's no hope. They're, he can turn it like that. He can raise them from the dead as he raised Lazarus. This shouldn't scare us. We ought to be encouraged. Because the devil's going to run around. If you know your Bible, he's going to run around for a season and all that, and you read biblical prophecy, and you know what? It's just lake of fire. Jesus comes back, rules, reigns forever. That's where we're going. It's not maybe. It's not I hope so. It's set in concrete. Because he's strong, yeah, and because he's great. And you know what? He's going to carry us and he's going to get us there. And there are people out there who haven't come in yet, and they're coming. They're coming. So be encouraged, guys. We've got a great God, and we've got a great Savior. He's going to get you through. Amen. Let's pray. We are grateful, our Father, for the truth of your word and for the power of your word. Uh, do we need to be alert? Yes, we do. We have an adversary. We don't walk around anxiously thinking where we're going to get nailed. You said in your word, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. So whatever we're facing today, we don't have to cower. We don't have to fear. We just want to be wise as we're in your word. Help us to stay in a Bible-teaching church. Thank you for a pastor here who teaches the word of God consistently. Thank you for guys who are here tonight from other churches in our community with pastors who teach the word of God. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. We're to be with other believers. We're to be in the word ourselves. We're to pray and ask for strength. 
We're to put on the armor. And as we go through this study, Lord, teach us. Equip us. Give us what we need. Help us to grow the muscle. Help us to grow in our faith. We only become strong warriors by being in the battle. And you want us to become those men. You'll get us there by your power. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.